Okay. If you can get your chapter one out in front of you, we're now going to go pretty much line by line through the first chapter. Um, that was an amazing overview, uh, and I was really relieved to, to hear that I'd, I wasn't planning on telling you anything that disagreed with what the authority has just told you, because I was definitely going to lose that arm wrestle. Um, but Romans is often mistakenly used as the ultimate summary of the gospel, but there's clearly something specific that Paul is responding to here. He does summarize the gospel. Of course, he lays down all sorts of universal principles, um, but Romans is a reaction to something. Quite clearly, we are seeing half of a telephone conversation going on here, um, and with a little bit of sleuth work, you can start to try and figure it out. If this is just Paul giving a an in-a-vacuum summary of the gospel, then all the on and on and on about Israel and Abraham and olive trees and stuff does seem a little bit strange. It wouldn't normally fall in, in a book like Ephesians, which has got a little less context to it. There's clearly some, some prior to what Paul is trying to achieve. He's writing into a context and trying to fix a context, trying to address a context. So that's one thing for us to try and spot. And you'll start to already see these themes start to emerge in chapter one if you are primed to spot them. Uh, the other thing to mention is that Paul's never been to this church. He's introducing himself blind. He's cold calling a church and offering himself as an apostle. And so you're going to notice in the first chapter, as much as there are one or two people that he knows there, that there's a whole lot of people who've possibly heard of Paul, but have no relational reason to listen to him. Uh, and so there's a little sales pitch going on, if you're prepared to spot it, in the beginning, where Paul is trying to win them over. And I'm going to suggest to you that you'll see three kind of trenches of thought going on through the first chapter as we read it. Um, and I'll prime you with those, and then we'll, we'll read the chapter. But he's initially trying to win them over. Then he starts to outline the gospel, and you could argue that he summarizes the whole book of Romans far less thoroughly than we just had it summarized. But he makes a very sort of summarizing point uh, just at the beginning as he outlines the gospel, and then he starts to change the tone. Having been lovely and winsome and got everyone on his side, he then slowly starts to up the temperature and put everyone on the back foot by the end of the first chapter. Um, that's what we're going to see. Right, so ready? Shall we read it? Um, let's go out of the... English standard. It's going to make it sound as complicated as possible. Um, I, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power um, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. And I'm under obligation, both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also, who are in Rome, because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 
And this is that bit I said was like a summary. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And we're going to pause there because we've now covered the first two blocks of what he's trying to do before we then get to the part where he ups the temperature. So he starts by calling himself a slave. I call a bond servant is the exact wording um, that he uses. That's interesting because he's a Roman citizen. He's the opposite of a bond servant. His folks at some point in a generation before him paid a fair amount of money to make sure that they could be Roman citizens and not have to be bond servants, people who have lost their freedom, people who have become owned by someone else, who have no longer got any rights of their own. And yet Paul volunteers, as we heard, he volunteers to submit himself to that servile position to Jesus Christ. Quite a fascinating way to start. The immediate ripples as he's speaking to this church in Rome would have been, but those of us who aren't slaves are really stoked that we're not slaves. Those of us who are slaves wish we could get out of this situation. The Roman economy was built on the idea of people, merchants, and that trying to make enough money to get themselves out of slavery. So for Paul, a Roman citizen, that holy grail of situations to have, to say I've actually volunteered for slavery, it's quite a, quite a jarring thing to start with. And then he goes on to reach out to the Jewish audience that he's referencing, what that he knows are there. So in the third verse, he starts speaking about um, the fact that Jesus is a descendant of David, and just like the prophets have, have predicted would happen. I think we're starting to see already that Paul is aware, and you'll start to notice him seesaw between these two groups of people, that there are factions, deep factions within this church. Doing a bit of sleuth work, if you follow Aquila and Priscilla around the New Testament, you'll get the impression that the Roman church was planted by a bunch of Jewish believers. Like all churches in the New Testament, it started out as a Jewish organization, meeting in the synagogue, Jewish people there on Pentecost, hear Peter's sermon, see the Holy Spirit come, go back home to Rome, start a church. Possibly some other Jews from around the New Testament time, head home at some point, and a Jewish congregation starts getting up and running. Nero gets sick of Jews in his city and kicks them all out. So you've had a Jewish-led church that would have had some Gentile converts suddenly ripped, well, has its leadership ripped out from it because all Jews are exiled from Rome. A little while later, Rome realizes the Jews were quite good for business, as many emperors have realized, um, and lets the Jews back in. And as I say, you're sleuthing a little bit, but it seems to me that we're at this moment where now what was once a Jewish church, which has now become totally a Gentile church, a Roman Gentile church, with all the pride that that implies, because Romans were proud, weren't they? Obviously, they were the America of the day. They were pretty convinced that they knew how to get things done, that all roads literally and figuratively led to where they were. And now you've got Jewish believers coming back to the church that they once ran, where now they're persona non grata, second-class citizens. This has turned into a Gentile church. What the cra- crazy things are going on here. And these Gentiles don't understand our ways, and they don't behave very well, and what on earth's going on? And so you'll notice that Paul keeps oscillating between these two groups to keep them on side and to let them hear what they need to hear. So he starts off by really affirming the Jewish members of this church. No, Jesus was Jewish. He was promised by Jewish prophets, and he comes out of a Jewish lineage. He's David's... Well, David was his ancestor. But he's not just impressive because he comes from these Jewish roots. He's also obviously impressive because he rose from the dead. He was revealed to us not just because he fulfilled Scripture, but because power went on and he was resurrected, right? And I got troubled for a little while uh, in the ESV translation where you, you hear that Paul speaks about the spirit of holiness, raised by the spirit of holiness. If you've 
the one other person in the room who's been troubled by that. That's the standard way, actually, for Paul to speak about the Holy Spirit. So there's no other thing going on here. Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit, numus and hagiosani, whatever the, the word for, for holy is. And so Paul's saying, no, the Holy Spirit moved in and did something powerful. Dunamis power raised Jesus from the dead. Uh, and so it's not just his lineage that's impressive. It's not just his CV that's impressive. Power came and brought him out from the grave. Um, and so we know that he's God. And then he gets into laboring a fairly sovereign point. He's laboring the sovereignty of God. I don't know if you want to just quickly skim through verses 6 and 7. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you, and so on. Paul does seem to be making a sovereignty point here. God called you. You didn't pick him. He picked you. You didn't save yourself. He saved you. You were called. As I said, the book of Romans is not a book in a vacuum. So might he be trying to make another point as well? Might there be something else going on here? If you've got Jewish people whose one big thing going for them is the fact that we are the people of God, we were called, and then you've got Gentile people saying, this is our church and you guys don't belong. Isn't it interesting that Paul is saying that you Gentiles who were called, you who were called to be part of the people of God, might he also be influencing the unity and equality of everyone in the church, not just the sovereignty of God? You'll start to see later on that Paul makes some statements that less sovereignty people would also quite enjoy. Often Romans is used as a book to kind of bang the sovereignty of God drum, that he chooses, he predestines, he calls, all of which is true. Um, but I think you may start to spot that there's some, some stuff in here that, that would bolster up a... Is someone reading back to me? Okay, that's awesome. Is the Bible being read to us? That's better than what's going on up here. So, as I said, Paul's laboring a sovereignty point, but it seems to me like he's also folding into that, the idea that you're all one people. Stop claiming, we're the people of God, we're the people of God, we have the prophets, we have the David. No, you're all called, you're all one people. Then verse 8, I was just struck. It says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. I want you to notice the big theological point Paul is making there. I thank my God. A Jew, a, a, he's grown up. God has always been Paul's God. He's always been part of the supposedly called people. But he says he speaks to his God. He prays to his God through Jesus Christ. That's a fascinating idea that Paul is saying, I don't necessarily have the right to just go direct to God, that I'm going to pray through someone. I'm going to pray through Jesus Christ. This new faith, this Christianity, this new sect that most people don't even know what to call yet. It's not even been christened Christianity at that point. It's still the way or whatever people, no one really knows what to call this strange sect of Judaism. Paul's saying, actually, the only way I can pray to my God is through Jesus Christ. It's a huge idea. And if... Um, if you were to flick through some of the things Jesus has to say in John 14, I am the way to the Father, no one comes except through me. John, also in John 14, whatever you ask for in my name, John 16, whatever you ask for in my name, he will give you. Um, Romans 8, 34, we'll get to this later, but I just want to read this to you. Who is there to condemn us? For Christ Jesus, who died and more than that was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and he is interceding for us. You have access to the Father through Jesus Christ. You pray to God the Father, but you pray in the name of Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. He is our great intercessor. He stands before God on our behalf. And Paul is affirming that right up front. I just, just, even though I'm a Jew of Jews, I don't just wander into the Holy of Holies and tell God what I think. No, through Jesus Christ, hidden in Christ, I get to talk to God. And just on a side note, Paul very rarely spoke about Jesus in him and seemed to always speak about him in Jesus that I am in Christ, that I'm baptized into Christ, and 
Modern day Christians talk a lot about little pint-sized Jesus inside me. It's less true. I mean, it is, but it's less true than little pint-sized you is hidden inside Christ. That's, he's ultimate, and you are secondary, and you hide in him and pray through him to your Father in heaven. Cool, I thought. Let's skip ahead a little to verse 13. So he's still being winsome. He's still trying to win them over. Um, and he's talking about how mutually encouraging it's going to be when they get together. And he says, I want you to know, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you. I've planned many times to come to you, but I've been prevented. Some would argue that these obstacles that stop Paul getting to Rome are the reason we have this book. Cooling his heels, maybe waiting for the trade winds to change so that he could ride the next ship to where he wanted to get to next. He had time, couldn't get to Rome for various reasons had always wanted to work there, always wanted to minister there, and now instead of being prevented from getting there, going, well, what could I do about it? He goes, well, what's the next best thing I can do? Let me write a letter. Let me cold call these folks. Be open to the thing you can still do while you wait to do the thing you wanted to do. Because that's what Paul seems to have done. And we have the Book of Romans for all time, this epic treasure trove, because obstacles, maybe something as arbitrary as a lack of a visa, in the ancient version of that. Stop Paul being able to get to Rome. And so he goes, well, I've got paper, lots of it, actually, 7,000 words worth of paper. So let me do what I can do. And he's still, just notice, he's going, and I, I want to come and do good work in you, like I've done in the other churches. I just want you to see. Paul is letting them know, I'm quite good at what I do. It'll be worth it if you let me get there. I've done some quite good work in the other churches, so it'll be, it'll be great for you if you let me get to you. And then, slowly but surely, he starts to summarize the gospel from verse 15 and 16. He, um, in verse 15, makes one final play to their pride, I think. Uh, he's talking about barbarians and, and civilized and foolish and wise. You notice that? And puts Rome fairly and squarely in the category of wise. Which is interesting, because a little later, he's going to start quoting via Habakkuk and some other places the fact that the wisdom that Rome had going on was really no, no good at all. But at this point, he's kind of going, hey, you guys are really smart, you're really civilized, you're no barbarians, you're, you're not foolish, you're, you're a proper city, and, and I'm really keen to come and preach to you. Um, so he's picking himself up a little bit, and he's also stroking their egos a little bit and going, come, 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 come closer, a little bit like some of the preachers in Olive do, come, 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 so he can then give them a bloody nose. But just before he does, he lays the gospel out. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And um, first to the Jew and then to the Greek, um, for it's the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith. That's the ESV version. There's some other ways to translate that, because it's a slightly strange phrase. So the NIV says it's the power of God that brings salvation um, first to the Jew, to the Gentile, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. The NLT says it's accomplished from start to finish by faith. The idea that you get saved by faith, that you grow in the gospel by faith, that you mature by faith, that everything's by faith, really. And we have some sophisticated definitions of faith. We, we start to I mean, we're busy doing a But God series right now, right? So we're busy trying to deal with what faith means and how you grow in it. And certainly if you were to look in places like Ephesians 2, you get to, we're saved by grace through faith, but this not of your own. It's a gift from God. And so we've gotten quite sophisticated about saving faith and that God actually gives you saving faith in the first place. It's not work that you can be proud of or boastful. But let's just remain simple for a second. Imagine you're in Rome and you don't have sophisticated theology and you've got some 
no-name apostle writing you a blind letter, how does he describe what faith is? Well, he references the prototype, Abraham, who believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That sounds a little less like, the, like Paul is fired up to build a theology around faith being a gift, and he's really building a theology around no, righteousness is the gift. You just choose to believe. As I said earlier, Romans is often used as a great argument for a really Calvinist point of view, sovereignty, sovereignty, which is true. But the Arminians have got some stuff to work with here as well. Let's not think that's not the case. Because as you read it in the simplest terms, Paul's kind of saying, well, if you choose to believe, you'll get saved. And if you don't, you won't. And I don't want you to quote me on that, because as I say, you can read the rest of the New Testament and you can start to get a more sophisticated definition of faith. But let's not miss the initial way the readers would have heard that. And if you get saved by faith... You're going to grow in faith as well. It's by faith and then faith right to the very end. That This is the most key variable in your life, that your ability to grow in faith and grow in faith and work in faith out your salvation. So there's this little quote that he, he references from Habakkuk um, where he, he quotes, the righteous shall live by faith. Right. So that's the end of his summary of the gospel. And of course, if there's a quote from Habakkuk, you have to go and find it. I mean, you don't get to go to Habakkuk very often. Um, and... It's interesting that the, the moment where God is talking through the prophet Habakkuk about living by faith, he's referencing really Roman behavior. That the, the people who are being contrasted to those people of faith who will be righteous because of their faith are full of greed, they're drunk on wine, they gather other people to join them in their bad behavior, they're really arrogant about their own strength. Which, as you're just about to see, is a pretty accurate description of what Rome is like. So remember Paul earlier was going, you guys are no barbarians, you're no fools, you're really wise, you're really sophisticated. He then says, well, the righteous live by faith. And if the Romans had gone and looked in Habakkuk, what he was quoting, they'd have maybe got a hint of what was coming. That your arrogance and your, your belief, I mean, Rome was committed to their military might. They were convinced they'd be fine because their military might. And if not for their military might, then for the economic might. And if not for the economic might, then for the intellectual might. Romans were pragmatic people. We got this under control. And remember, this church is now under the leadership of a bunch of Gentile Romans who possibly are bringing some of that pride in. And then you've got some, some refugee Jews. They're going, well, this was once our church, and these guys have gotten a bit big for their boots. These folks who think that we're backwater barbarians, and they're the really wise, really sophisticated ones. And Paul's going, no, it's, the righteous live by faith, not by might, not by economic power, not by whatever you can control. And he starts to reference that out of the book of Habakkuk, and then starts to change his tone. So here's where we need to get back into the book and keep reading. So from verse 18, if you're brave enough, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or glorify him, some of your translations will be saying, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. I just want you to keep that ringing in your mind, honoring and glorifying God and being grateful and, thank, and giving thanks. That those two pillars are what they should have been doing, but they avoided those two options and so instead became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. 
Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of... And just listen to this next list, because it's been pretty brutal reading up to now, but listen to how domestic some of this stuff becomes. Um, all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. He sucked them in, sucked them in. And in fact, even when the tone changed and he starts speaking about these, you know, lawless, godless people who worship and created things, not the creator, you can imagine the Roman church all nodding along. Yeah, you tell them, Paul. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I wish they were here for this preach, you know. And then he just subtly draws more and more of them in. And you can imagine that as he started to deal with homosexuality, we'll talk about that more in a moment, but that was a pervasive and very natural thing in the Roman world. You can imagine a bunch of the Roman Christians starting to go, oh, this is a little uncomfortable because I thought that was kind of part of our culture. And then he starts speaking about being disobedient to your parents or gossiping or having any kind of slander. And you can imagine a bunch of people who at the one at the outset were going, yeah, you hit them hard, Paul. You show them. You tell them. We're not starting to go, whoa, hang on, hold the phone. Who is this guy? We're not really sure if we like him. It seems to me that there's a a starting point for all this human misery that Paul is cataloging. I mean, he's just cataloging the mess we get ourselves into. And before we get into the gory details, and we're not going to get deep into the gory details of exactly what every, everything that Paul describes, it's worth noticing that at the outset, he says that you have this opportunity to honor and glorify God and to give thanks or to go a different way. And it seems to me that the opposite of honoring and glorifying God would be pride, right? Honoring and glorifying yourself. And it seems to me that the opposite of gratefulness to God would be a sense of entitlement, that I have what I have because I deserve it. Wouldn't it be interesting if wherever you find entitlement or wherever you saw pride, you would start to see, oh no, wait, that's exactly what you do see, isn't it? Anytime you start to see entitlement sit inside all of us, because we all start out feeling fairly entitled, or any time you start to see that pride, the world revolves around me, I'm the most important person in my story. It's just one short skip and a jump from that to next thing you're disobeying your parents, which is right up there with murder. And all the things that flow out from what Paul would call an unnatural way to live start with a disagreement with the idea that there is a God and you're not him. And that he gave you everything you have and you don't deserve it. So be grateful and honor him. And even in a fairly nat- sort of basic, primitive version of worshiping God, I mean, Paul's talking about the fact that just creation tells you this stuff. You should be able to worship God in some very basic way. 
it would start with those two things, that he is glorious and I am not, and that he gave me everything I have and I get to be grateful to him. And if we were to just start there, we probably could get a lot right. But we chose to throw that off. And having made that choice to honor self, not honor God, and to feel entitled as opposed to feeling thankful, the next step seems to be that we then exchange truth for lies. So that seems to be a theme as you go through all the stuff that Paul is talking about going wrong in society. One of the main themes you see is that people have thrown off truth and accepted a lie. A lie about what God is like, a lie about what they are like, and a lie about how the world works. He can't actually be trusted. He's not really that powerful. I'm really important. I can get this done by myself. And the world works in a way that it's okay to cut the corners and sin against your conscience and do whatever, because you'll probably get away with it. Nice guy's probably finished last. Lies, all of them. But having chosen to start with the there's no really glorious God and I don't really need to be thankful, the next step that Paul is describing looks like exchanging truth for lies. And then the natural step after that is that you then start to choose created over creator. And it keeps revisiting this idea that we've rejected the eternal and immortal and glorious for the temporal and limited. And we have begun to worship creation. And this sounds so far removed, doesn't it? But I worry that we're so much closer to the than we think because I'm created, so when I worship myself, I'm no better. And the things that I'm longing for, the dreams that I'm like, I've got to get that, and if I don't get that, I will never be satisfied. Well, that's a created thing that I'm pegging my hopes for happiness on. And the money, the whatever it is that promises security, all these things are created. And so Paul is going, well, if you've started by overthrowing, glorifying God, and being thankful, and you've then allowed lies to take root, and you've not replaced them with the truth about who God is, who you are, and how the world works, the next natural step is that created things are going to start bubbling a little higher up the priority list than the creator himself. And the natural next step is that you throw off what is natural and you start to choose what is unnatural. And I'm suspicious when humans want to throw natural and unnatural around. I worry. I think people throw that around a little too often because all of us have got limited uh, and jaded views on the world. And so when any one of us starts to tell someone, well, that's natural and that's unnatural, it can often sound a little dangerous, a little too close to judgmental. But God, the creator himself, absolutely has the right to say certain things are natural and certain things are unnatural. And Paul, speaking to this cosmopolitan city, Rome, full of all these different cultures, different religions, all different expressions, sexual and otherwise, is saying, no, there is actually such a thing as natural, and there is actually such a thing as unnatural, and God absolutely gets to say which is which. And if you read again that back end there, he spends some time on homosexuality, which is a, was rife in Rome, but then in the same thought about what's having rejected what's natural and gone for what's unnatural, he then continues into everything else, which means that, according to Paul, Evil is unnatural. Covetousness is unnatural. Malice is unnatural. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, these are unnatural things. Gossip is unnatural. Insolence, haughtiness, boastfulness, inventing evil, being disobedient to your parents is unnatural, according to the Creator. That where you see these things start to happen, this means that what is unnatural has started to usurp what should actually be done. That what ought not to be done is now being done. And so Paul is really laying down the law. There is a creator, and he gets to decide what's natural, and you don't. And some things that feel quite natural to you, like gossip, like flipping the bird at your parents, like whatever, 
well, he still gets to say that's not natural. And if he says that's not natural, he's right. And you have a choice to react to that based on that very first assumption, who's actually God? Who's actually entitled here? And from there, the cascade of lies we've believed and unnatural things we've allowed to creep and flow. Homosexuality gets a fair amount of airtime here, so let's just mention it. Um, as I say, it's, it's in the same catalog of all these other things that are unnatural. So before we are guilty of doing what so many churches do, which is speaking loads about one sin and very little about others, let's just say this is all classed under what's unnatural and shouldn't be done. And the people doing all these things are about to be told, none of you get to judge each other because you've all sinned. So there's a huge amount of equality before the judgment seat of God when it comes to this. And therefore, all of us are just as desperately in need of grace and sympathy. But just to comment technically on what Paul is speaking about, I've some friends of mine that have, we've debated this issue with um, would point to some other places going, well, maybe the homosexuality that the Bible is against is quite a negative, nasty thing. Uh, not normal homosexuality like we would know today. So bear with me. Um, but with some sort of careful translation of certain places where you see homosexuality spoken about in the New Testament, it might seem, folks would argue, that what actually is in view is a form of slave behavior. Some young boys in Roman world or, or temple prostitutes who are kind of kept in a, in a form of slavery. That's what's being outlawed. Normal consenting relationships between equal people is not what's being outlawed by the New Testament. But that's just clearly not what's going on here, is it? Paul is speaking about consenting equals. That these are normal words. He's using, instead of having normal desire for the opposite sex, they're having that same desire for the same sex. There's no sense that Paul is talking about some kind of slave trade or some kind of odd aberration that's only in Roman society. He's talking about what it seems to say on the page. That when men choose to be attracted to men, when women choose to follow their attraction to women. So we need to say that as natural as it may feel for some folks, and as much as I know how hard it can be for any of us to resist things that we were born wanting, and if you're single and not married, then there's a whole bunch of natural stuff that you desire, which the Bible tells you not to go for. And there's, if you live next to someone who has a really nice car, there's some natural desire and coveting you have. There's so many natural desires that the Bible says, just because it's natural to you, just because it's automatic, doesn't make it right. Just because it's all you've ever known doesn't mean that it, that gives you permission. That there is a creator, you're not him, he gets to say what's natural and unnatural. And all of us, at some point, are going to be found wanting by that. And so before I close off chapter one, because that would be a hard note to end on, I'm going to just nick something out of next week uh, to bring you back here. So remember, Paul's won them over. I'm a great guy. I've done some good work in other churches. You guys are really wise and not foolish, and you're just a, a long to be with you. And I'm writing you this epic long letter that was deeply expensive to send because I just think you're so great, and I've heard all these wonderful things about you. And the gospel is this wonderful good news, and he outlines it in this beautiful way, and he's got the Jews on side, and he's got the Gentiles on side, and he'll keep doing that all the way through chapter 4, where he speaks at length about Abraham, and everyone's going, oh, we like this guy. He sucks them in and sucks them in. Then he starts talking about these idolaters, and everyone's going, yeah, they're idiots. Don't we not like them? And then gives everyone the bloody nose. And in fact, all of us are starting to feel a little guilty of this stuff. Chapter 2, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgments on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. 
and you can get the feeling that Paul is setting up the case that in fact we're all desperately in need, desperately in need of this other route to righteousness that doesn't depend on our works. It doesn't take away how real the, this stuff is and the consequences for it, but none of us are going to try and climb this ladder and get this right and self-repair. There's another way coming, and Paul has set the scene.